Hey, welcome to In Doubt. This week on the show, we talk again with researcher and pastor Paul Dirks. This is part two of our conversation on transgenderism. Paul fills us in on the findings of hours upon hours of research on various transgender reports. And we also ask Paul how we as Christians can best engage the transgender community. A good and defensible generalization would be that gender dysphoria goes away in 80 to 90 percent of children after adolescence. One of the leading studies says that 86.4 percent of those who met the full criteria were no longer gender dysphoric after the study. Hey, it's Isaac here, host of In Doubt. Happy you're listening in with us and hanging with us this week. Thank you for that. Uh, if you regularly listen and have been impacted by this ministry, uh, you should let us know. It's really encouraging to us. Uh, you should also rate and review In Doubt on iTunes uh, because obviously we would really appreciate that, but also it helps others find our show and then want to listen to our show as well. Anyways, this week is part two of our two-week series on transgenderism. We talk again with researcher and pastor Paul Dirks. Well, he kind of talks to us since most of this conversation uh, is him just filling us in on some of the surprising and interesting findings of different reports on transgenderism. If you didn't listen last week, I'd encourage you to check it out since he defines terms that are important for our conversation today. And he also shares with us more of his personal journey of getting involved in these kinds of issues. So here's our conversation with Paul Dirks. With me today again is Pastor Paul Dirks. If you weren't here last week, uh, you wouldn't know that Paul is a husband, a father, and a local church pastor in New Westminster, which is close to Vancouver in BC, Canada. Uh, he's also the founder of Woman Means Something. Anyways, thanks again for being here today, Paul. Yeah, great to be back with you again, Isaac. You know, it was made evident by the end of our last conversation that we really hadn't really, you know, gotten into some of the facts of what you've studied regarding transgenderism, which we said we would get into. So, uh, you know, and we also didn't touch on other few questions that I had hoped to ask you. So that's what this conversation is all about. Now, if you're listening and you didn't hear last week's conversation, definitely go check it out. Um, it's almost a must if you want to understand uh, kind of fully the full picture of where Paul is coming from personally. He kind of shares a bit of his story and what he's been up to, um, but also what we are addressing in this today's conversation. But anyways, before we jump into that, very briefly, for those who don't know you, Paul, can you just take a minute or so to explain who you are? Yeah, sure, Isaac. Yeah, I'm I'm a husband and a father, as you mentioned. But I'm most importantly, I'm a uh, I'm a saint in Christ Jesus who has redeemed me. That's uh, that's my ultimate identity. And uh, but also somebody who has done a lot of uh, research and reading on uh, sexual issues, gender issues. And so, yeah, some of your listeners will know that I went to uh, the Senate uh, to to present on Bill C sixteen. But I also do a lot of training on these issues. Uh, trying to bring some clarity, not only from a Christian standpoint, but also trying to clarify for people what the literature, you know, the peer-reviewed secular literature says about some of these topics because of uh, some of the bias and obfuscation that, that goes on in the media with, with not carefully representing what's in the literature. Yeah, definitely. No, that's really important. And then, you know what? I'm just thinking, too, um, do you mind just sharing with us what Bill C-16 is, for those who don't know, and how that kind of, uh, like, why you went to the Senate to oppose this, to oppose this bill. I think that would be important for us to know before we jump into this conversation. Uh, bill C-16 was passed last year in Ottawa, a piece of legislation that put gender identity and uh, gender expression 
into the Human Rights Code, uh, as well as a aggravating circumstance under the Criminal Code. Uh, I had some concerns about the bill because of how the words gender and sex necessarily collide legally. Uh, and so I, you know, even though I do a lot of research on kind of the medical side of things, I went to the Senate, the major piece that I was kind of speaking on was uh, privacy and protections for women. Uh, when you all of a sudden protect uh, gender identity, what you end up doing is women end up losing their, their privacy rights, their bodily privacy rights, whether it's in change rooms or showers or bathrooms. Uh, and so trying to bring some, some clarity, both from a legal standpoint, but also from a, yeah, from a sexual offenses standpoint and trying to point out the different uh, offenses that have resulted, in some cases very clearly, because of gender identity policies um, and trying to, uh, yeah, trying to, to speak on those things. But of course, some of this now is being worked out in, um, you know, whether it's in the schools, it, the ramifications are, are pretty significant. Yeah, definitely, for sure. Now, Paul, you've you've spent a lot of time uh, researching, obviously, you read these reports and articles that, um, you know, for many, for many of us, it's not just, you know, sit down on a Friday night and let's read this thing. And in light of all you've learned, I, I really do want to spend some time today that, on this conversation that you would just share a few pieces of information you think would be best to share with us. Yeah, thank you. So I think probably one of the first places to start is is around some of how some of these issues are playing out in in society, especially with youth and young people, you know, in our school system, and that a lot of people are not aware that the literature is uh, unequivocal concerning the finding that gender dysphoria goes away for children after adolescence. So just as an example, Steensma in 2011, who was one of the leaders uh, on these things, he says, although the persistence rates differed between the various studies between 2 and 27 percent, uh, the results unequivocally showed that the gender dysphoria remitted, in other words, it went away, after puberty in the vast majority of children. So we see, you know, a, a generalization, and I've done some YouTube videos on this, a, a good and defensible generalization would be that uh, gender dysphoria goes in a way, goes away in 80 to 90 percent of children after adolescence. And so, for instance, one of the leading studies was actually done by a, by a Canadian by the name of Davida Singh uh, in 2012. And, you know, she, she measured those who had the full diagnostic criteria for a gender identity disorder, and, and that 86.4 percent of them, of those who met the full criteria, uh, were no longer gender dysphoric after for the study so or at study end so so this is i mean this is a very robust finding across the literature there's not a single study uh anywhere ever been done on the topic that has found anything less than a majority really quite a significant majority you know with it not going away such a robust finding across the literature so you know this has tremendous implications for parents that that may discover their child you know has some troubles in regards to their their gender how they feel, how they um, how they represent their you know their their gender, but you know one of the safest things you can do for your child is is simply to wait. That this is by and large a developmental issue, and uh, it's sad just how things get skewed in our yeah in the media. Um, people not aware of of just the uh, ubiquity of this finding. So yeah, it just it you know it's one of those things that is not clearly represented in, in the media. I guess uh, just a. Punch in here for a second, Paul. Like I, you know, I hear that 
fact, this might sound kind of like a silly question, but why is that important? Why do we need to know that? Yeah, no, that's a really good question, actually. And and it's because the, the treatment for those who persist in gender dysphoria currently is uh, is very severe it's you know some authors will recognize that and uh like blanchard and say things like it's it's a palliative option he actually uses that language but there's a recognition that this is really really severe that that you are putting a block on the normal pubertal process these people that are you know that do become transsexuals they go through a full medical transition they'll uh, take cross-sex hormones for the rest of their lives that's something that's largely experimental. We don't know what a, what it looks like for a body to be on decades worth of cross-sex hormones. And then, of course, leading to leading to surgeries, right, where you have double mastectomies, you have genital reconstruction. And then, you know, along with these things, there's sterilization as well. Uh, there is the odd report where people, you know, uh, stop taking cross-sex hormones, they're able to have a child, but fertility is damaged. And as long as people are on the cross-sex hormones, they will not be able to, to bear children. And so, the, the repercussions for going through with treatment are, you know, they're very significant. And so, you know, w- when we see that 80 to 90% of these kids, that, that this problem will just go away and they avoid, you know, lifelong medicalization, sterilization, you know, removal of healthy body parts. This is, I mean, this is really key. It's really important. Absolutely. Now, for those that that go through with, uh, say, uh, you know, a, a sex change and different things like that, I mean, from your studies, ha- have you looked at their, you know, their kind of their, their future, like what happens after that? Yeah, and and you know, it's it's interesting that there's quite a disparity in the literature between short-term outcomes for for those who go, you know, either on cross-sex hormones or uh, or have the full. Um, gender reassignment surgery, or uh, or both, the short-term outcomes are are very different than the long-term outcomes, and it is often, sadly, the short-term outcomes that tend to get a lot of press uh, in the media. But the long-term studies really should be the ones that we're interested in, and and it's you know they show vastly worse outcomes. Let me let me throw a few things here at your at your listeners. There's three studies that have been done that are registry-based studies. And what that means is that uh, they're able to use registry-based national data in the countries where these studies were done to be able to overcome what is a significant problem in the literature on treatment outcomes, which is that there's tremendous loss to follow-up after, you know, after a couple of years. Uh, and this, this is obviously, this is a problem that isn't just in this field, but uh, but is I think pro- probably particularly in this field. Uh, so to get around that, you've got Simonson 2016 in Denmark, who takes a look at the registry data and finds that the psychological outcomes uh, of those who have gone through sex reassignment surgery is not significantly better than those you, you know that when they started. So they're able to do a kind of a pre and post treatment comparison, uh, and there's no statistical significant difference between those two studies from 2011 show also poor outcomes. Ashman in 2011 found that mortality rates, and particularly for suicide and death by AIDS for male to female uh, transsexuals, which was the bulk of their study, found highly elevated uh, rates. So for instance, the the rate of suicide, death by suicide was 5.7 times higher. Death uh, on account of AIDS was 30 times higher. 
than for the population. Uh, so, you know, again, you've got poor outcomes. Desjardins 2011 is one of the more interesting and actually better known studies, um, and, and partly because Desjardins says uh, about her study, I've actually had conversation, some conversation with Desjardins over email, um, but she says that you can't use her study to show poor outcomes because there's no comparison, there's no pre and post comparison. However, the problem with that, which I think is, is kind of a biased interpretation of her study, is that her death by suicide findings um, compared to her controls uh, of, this, uh, of this group that had gone through medical transition was 19 times higher, 19 times higher death by suicide uh, than population controls. And, and the, you know, the issue here is that there are no studies, and I've, I've read the literature quite extensively. There's no uh, study that shows 19 times higher levels of suicide at anywhere, whether it's pre or post, anything. And so you've got kind of this baseline where Desjardins is saying, well, it could have been worse than that if they hadn't have been treated. And I just look in the literature and I, and I say to myself, I, I'm not seeing that. I'm not seeing any place where it, it is worse than that. Now, a couple of interesting pieces that kind of bolster that claim is uh, is Adams in 2017, who is uh, completely a you know pro transition advocate, and yet at times, of course, you know they have to say what they're actually finding, even if they don't want to. And in one place, Adams says this that uh, it seems counterintuitive that suicide attempts are lower before transition than over most other periods. You know, here he's take he's actually doing a meta analysis. Of, of all the different studies where we have numbers on suicidality levels, whether it's ideation or actual attempts. Uh, and, and what he finds is that, uh, you know, things are worse or, or not much better post-transition than even just the last year for, for transgender people. So it's, um, you know, again, you talk, start comparing long-term to either before treatment or, or short-term, and you get significant disparities. I'll mention one other uh, study, and that is that uh, Lingfist in, uh, in 2017 did the only longitudinal study of any length that we have, um, where she assessed at, I believe, one year, three year, and, and five years. And, and it's interesting that if you look across the measurements you see very robust finding where all of the measures of mental health and emotional uh, stability, they all, most of them go up a little bit at the beginning, and then all of them go down after that. Now, interestingly, because, again, you do have a little bit of a loss to follow up, once you get five years, you no longer have statistical significance. So, you know, there, that's a limitation there. But when you take a look at the tables, you, you really are seeing what you find in a lot of these other studies, which is that, you know, long term, the, the outcomes are not anywhere near as good as short term. And in fact, they I would characterize the long term outcomes as being exceptionally poor with uh, highly elevated levels of suicidality, suicide attempts and, and low um, psychological health.
Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's it's interesting as you say all that. I mean, it, it's so important to hear um, the, the the facts, like the unbiased facts, because I feel like so often in the media we only hear sort of the philosophy of the you know the LGBTQ culture and just in this positive light. Um, so I think it's really important that we actually hear uh, these facts. And I would say to listeners as well, Paul's mentioned a couple times just some just a few YouTube videos that he has online, uh, kind of going through some of these reports. And I've actually watched some of one, and it's very detailed. <laughs> and he has the report up there. It's awesome. It's very good. So I'm gonna I'll, I'll put the links to those uh, if you're listening and you're interested in those. I'll put those on the episode podcast page. But anyways, Paul, with the remaining time that we have, let's I want to transition into a few other questions that I have um, yeah. just about you know us being Christians in our engagement with uh, those that um, either are transgender or are full, you know, full heartedly in this sort of transgender philosophy and believe into it. So in terms of those who are there, just almost in a, in a simple sense, what are the best ways that we can engage them um, in hopes of bridging this, you know, being, uh, you know, being good neighbor to them and hopefully seeing them come to Christ eventually? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think we need to start by uh, let me just affirm for your uh, for your listeners that I love LGBT people. I love I love transgender people, um, and and I have a number of friends, you know, that are transgender, uh, and so you know, I think we start with the fact that um, that you know, our whether it's our sexual or even gender identity, these things do not constitute our full range of human experience or identity. And so there, there's all sorts of avenues for building bridges with, with you know, anybody, no matter, you know, what are the areas that we disagree with, um, and to, you know, to explore those areas. But, you know, if I had to, if I had to get into a little bit more detail, you know, there are some, some interesting aspects of the, of the gender identity, you could say, the philosophy that would prove, you know, very interesting areas for discussion and uh, one of those would just be an exploration. There's kind of asking, you know, what do you, you know, what do you feel is valuable about, you know, manhood or womanhood, uh, or even to ask, you know, a transgender person, what was it about, you know, the, the gender identity that you now uh, claim that that drew you to that, and to just be able to start talking through what constitutes the the value or the inherent nature of maleness or femaleness. And uh, one of the things that I have seen is that, at least in, in, in quite a few portrayals of, uh, of transgenderism, I think a, a rather unhealthy sex stereotype that people are taking on. This might not be the case for all, but you know, when you see portrayals of transgender people in, in the media, you, know, you have, for instance, males looking quite highly uh, sexualized in their portrayal of, of themselves as feminine. And, and I would just want to ask, you know, people, is, is that really what being a woman is about? You know, why, why, why when these transitions happen, does it go to what seems like a really stereotyped, unhealthy stereotyped or even sexualized version of, of the real thing? 
No, that, that's that's awesome. That's really good. And I think it's important to kind of ask those questions, uh, obviously in a very respectful way to people that you're you're talking to and just sort of hear their answers and just ask them honestly and, and lovingly because you actually do want to, to know. And I, this next kind of question is sort of uh, tagged on to the last one. And, and I ask it for a reason because I think so often uh, sort of the, the church and uh, Christianity, I'll be careful when I say this, but we sort of put this massive chasm between those that are, you know, uh, activists for the LGBT community and transgenders, and then there's us over here. Um, and I'm just wondering, is there anything that we as Christians can be, you know, quote unquote, for uh, with a transgender activist rather than just always being against them and always, you know, that kind of thing? And you know, is there any belief that we can find mutual ground on? Because I'm sure that they, you know, for instance, I would think maybe the dignity of human life, maybe, I don't know, like, is there anything that we can be for with to have a beneficial conversation with them? Yeah, I think um, one of the challenges on that uh, is that the uh, the transgender philosophy, it posits some interesting logical incoherencies that, you know, so for instance, uh, you know, the example that I just gave of, of asking somebody, um, you know, why, you, you know, you decided to, um, you know, to claim this certain identity, you know, the, I think I may have mentioned last time that the transgender philosophy posits at once uh, that, that male and female, you know, can be, can be switched or swapped out. Uh, but at the same time, there are radical differences such that you would do that. Uh, so, you know, depending on where somebody's at in their own expression or identity, you know, I think you could latch on either one of those and actually have quite a fruitful conversation where you are willing, where you're able to uphold some key aspects uh, of human experience. So, you know, for instance, I remember hearing from a transgender person once that, you know, the person always felt with him. He was a male, and, and he always felt that uh, he was more comfortable with females. Well, you know, I, I think that that would be a very fruitful avenue of discussion. And to actually talk about the fact that um, I think a lot of men actually do feel very comfortable with women because it's because of the nature of, of women's, I would say, their open spirits. You know, so, but it, you'd want to know kind of which way, how people are presenting their, you know, their gender identity or expression to be able to build some of those bridges. And, and that's maybe some of the challenge is uh, just the, the natural incoherency of the narrative. But, but that doesn't mean that, you know, a certain person could be quite consistent or, you know, in, in their own narrative and be able to then use that as, as an opportunity to build really important bridges as far as, uh, you know, valuing them, but then also valuing uh, how God has created us as male or female. Yeah, absolutely. That that that's so good. Thank you so much, Paul. And I just want to, uh, you know, thank you again for just for these last two weeks of talking to us about the sensitive uh, subject. And I hope if you're listening that that has interested you. Um, if you do want to learn more, I, again, I would suggest you go to womanmeanssomething.com where you can read articles and different things that Paul and others have put out on some of the facts, sort of the unbiased facts of these uh, of these, these issues. And as well, like I said earlier in the conversation, I will post uh, some links to the YouTube video 
grandiose that Paul has done. And again, last week's information, we, we last week's podcast, Paul and I did sort of touch on how the gospel uh, affects uh, the sort of transgender issue and things like that. So I, I definitely encourage you to go back there as well and listen to that. But again, I want to thank you so much, Paul, and I'm sure that we'll talk about maybe end times uh, on our next conversation, which I think would be lots of fun. <laughs> Nice. Thank you, Isaac. Yeah. Talk to you later. All right. Take care. That was pastor and researcher Paul Dirks. And Paul regularly posts about this issue and others on his Twitter. So you can follow him with the handle at Paul Dirks. It was all one word P A U L D I R K S, at Paul Dirks. Now, I hope this two-week series has got you thinking uh, a bit more about the transgender issue. And hopefully that thinking was both critical and biblical at the same time. You know, we share with Paul, and I think he shared this in the first uh, part of our two-week series, we share with Paul a love for all people. In fact, I was I was watching a video where Paul uh, Dirks addressed uh, this group of people. It was kind of a recent uh, a video as well where he was just yeah addressing these people about these issues. And at the very beginning... Uh, he, in, in quite an emotional way, kind of expressed that this was not nothing to do with a hate sort of thing or whatever or intolerance or whatever. And he shared this true love that he does have um, of, of all people, but specifically, obviously, uh, people that are maybe in the transgender co- community, right? So we share with Paul this love for all people uh, because our Savior demonstrated uh, that to us and commanded us to love all people. You know, we are to love God and love others and our gaining in knowledge of these, you know, sensitive issues and our engagement in people who are on, you know, the other side, the LGBTQ side, let's say, uh, they need to be grounded in a love and a yearning for all people to reach salvation through God's gospel. You know, we consider Jesus' words in uh, Matthew twenty-two thirty-five to 40. It's awesome. And it says this, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him, Jesus, a question to test him, right? And he says this, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And really, before we can honestly love God and then love others, obviously, we need to grasp and be overwhelmed by the love God showed us in the gospel. You know, one of my favorite verses is 1 John 4, 19, which simply says, and you should memorize this and meditate on it because it's so short, we love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. There, there's something huge there, but I want to just back up for a second to what Jesus previously said, which we just quoted in Matthew 22. He says, the first And greatest commandment is to love God with everything. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. You know, for lots of us that are in the church and, you know, have grown up in the church, let's say, uh, sometimes we kind of get those two things uh, mixed around where we say the first thing we should do is love others. And then, you know, then we love God or we we sort of uh, prioritize loving others before we prioritize loving God. But here's what I got to say, and you can test this out yourself. We will love people more. We will love our neighbors more if we prioritize our love for God at a, in a greater way, if that makes sense. So you test it out and you'll see that your love for people will grow uh, the more that you prioritize loving God with all that you 
are. And, you know, we love because he first loved us. So we will not love unless we recognize and behold the wondrous love that he has given us in the gospel. So that's why we keep reading our Bibles. That's why we keep praying. And that's why we keep having these conversations directed at a gospel center in a gospel centered way because we love because he first loved us in the gospel. If In Doubt is a ministry that you'd be interested in financially supporting, we'd be so grateful for that. You can do so by clicking the donate button at indoubt.ca if you live in Canada or indoubt.com if you live in the States. You can connect with us online this week. It'd be awesome to hear from you and hear what you have to say. Perhaps there's a, a question that you want us to answer or to talk about or a guest that you've been listening to or have you heard about that you'd like us to talk to. We'd love that. So you can direct message us on Facebook, on Twitter, Instagram. You can even email us at hello at indoubt.com as well. That would be awesome to hear from you. Well, I'm Isaac, and next week we hear from Jonathan Bailey, one of the founders of the new Dwell app, an app that takes the auditory receiving of the scriptures very seriously. So we talk about the importance of listening to the Bible. We'll see you then. Indoubt Ministries exists to bring a biblical perspective into the relevant issues of life and faith that young adults face every day. For more information, check out indoubt.ca if you live in Canada and indoubt.com if you live in the U.S.